And Chazak Ve'amat, or where I come from, Yashkoyach, to everybody here who, with tremendous Mesirat Nefesh, tremendous effort, left everything that you were doing and filled up a plane and a half of people who were able to come from Panama to Lakewood for only one purpose, and that is to be able to grow in our Torah and our Yirat Shemayim, which is an unbelievable accomplishment. My friends, I'm jealous of you walking into Rosh Hashanah. Because everyone in this room is going to walk into Rosh Hashanah and say to God, you know how I spent my summer vacation? I came to Lakewood. I got up early in the morning for Slichot. I went from class after class. I listened to boring rabbi after boring rabbi. I went and I slept and I slept. Now you tell me if I deserve a good year. And I can tell you that everyone in this room is able to walk confidently into Rosh Hashanah. And on that, I'm very jealous of you. So um, I'm going to try, and I also appreciate it's at the end of a long day, and you have another long day ahead of you, you know. So uh, I will try to speak quietly, so those of you who are sleeping, I won't bother you. (laughs) And if anybody wants to eat while I'm speaking, go right ahead, you know. And if anyone needs to leave, just don't stand up and say, I've had enough of this, and slam the door. But, uh, you know, really, I, I have nothing but the greatest respect for the people in this room and the tremendous sacrifice it took to be here. So I want to say over an idea. I was given a topic for tonight, but I want to I introduce it with the following idea that's probably the most important thing a person needs if they're going to learn uh, anything in Torah, in anything, but certainly in life. Right? Certainly in Torah. I have the schut to speak to audiences of all ages and of all religious backgrounds all around the world. And particularly when I talk to college students and I say, what was there about your Jewish education that you didn't like? They always say the same thing. It was so irrelevant to my life. I never learned anything that has to do with my life. I'm talking to university students, and I say to them, what do you remember from your Jewish education? Dreidel, 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 I made you out of clay. Beautiful. That's all they remember. That was Hanukkah. And they remember that we killed the Greeks because they were trying to bring us Greek culture. Then they go to university, and they study Plato, and they study Aristotle, and they study the Greek plays, and they study science, and they say, we wanted to kill these people so we could play dreidel? I don't understand. Because they have a little child's education. And if I learn something, and this is so important, if I learn a piece of Gemara, if I learn a halacha, if I learn a Rashi, anything that I learn, I have to ask myself the following question. What does it have to do with my life? And I have to tell you, we're living in very, very strange times. For most of mankind's history, everything was the same. Now everything is upside down. It takes less than two years to completely double the amount of knowledge that the world has. As much as they know today, in two years from now, they'll know double what they know today about everything. So uh, things are changing so quickly. Yeah? Hashem tells Moshe to make chatzotzrot. Trumpets. And you'll blow the trumpet 
And if you blow it one way, so Klai Yisrael will come together, you blow a different tune, and, uh, and the Nisim will come, and different kind of things. When Moshe died, he was buried with those Chatzotras. They were put away. They had to make new Chatzotras for the next person. It says Rameya Shapiro, why? It says, because the tune stays the same, but the instrument has to change. And what worked in the last generation will not work today. You know, and we know that. Rav Shach said, he said this 25 years ago, a generation today is two years. That means that if you talk to kids who are 20 years younger than you, or you're talking about 40 generations, that's what it's like. The world is changing so rapidly. So I was given a topic to speak about this evening, and uh, that's the concept of, I guess what we really would call uh, in Jewish thought, ga'ava, yeah? Which is usually translated as egoism, right? Being an, being an egotist, being self-centered, right? Now, I have to tell you that that's changed. Uh, you can't really talk about it today. It's certainly not the way we've always talked about it. And that's a big problem, because if you do, you read things from past generations, they don't apply to us. Here's a story, Pesach Kron tells this story about Rosham Shadron, the famous Magid of Yishalayim. When he was a bacher in yeshiva, so they were davening on whatever fast day it was, and uh, by the time he finished the Chazor Tashatz, so it was already after Shkia. So he didn't know if he should say Tachlon or not. Wasn't sure. So he uh, looks around, and Rosham Shadron, he was, just a, he was just a boy, you know, but he was sitting up front, and he was like, no, no, Kaddish, you're Peshkia, you know what I'm saying? So the guy says Kaddish, and when he was done, the Mashkiach of the yeshiva, the Mashkiach is not the guy who checks the food, he checks the boys, right? He's responsible for taking care of all the boys, yeah? He gives a big bang, and he says, I want to ask all the Rashi yeshiva to please come down from their seats. We have a new Rashi yeshiva. Shalom Shadron. He decides all of the halachic matters of the yeshiva. He says, I wonder if I could ask the new Rosh Hashiva to bring me a Mishnah Brura Chalik Beis. So Shalom Shadron says, I don't know how my feet moved. He says, I walk over, I bring him it, he opens it up, and he reads out loud. You're not supposed to say Tachlon after Shkia, but if you're running late, like on a fast day, then you're allowed to say it afterwards. Okay. That was the end of it. He says, I went back to my room, I got into my bed, I pulled the cover over my head, I didn't come out for two days. At the end of two days, I get a, I get a message. The mashkiach wants to see you. He says, I didn't know if I was more afraid to come or not to come, I'll tell you the truth. I decided I was more afraid not to come. He says, so I come back, and he looks at me and he says, you know why I did what I did, and you'll grow from this. Now, take your gemara and go sit down. Now, Shalom Shadron told over this story, he would say, like a surgeon, he stuck in a knife and cut out half my gava. I'm just sorry he left the other half there. Then he said the following, but you could never do this to someone today because they would just completely fall apart. Rav Huttner in the 60s said, when back in Europe, he used to talk about gaiva. Yeah, because he had gaiva. A guy struggled, worked hard all day just to get enough money to buy bread for his family. And then he'd go to the Beit Midrash and he'd sit there all night and learn. He had what to be a Bulgaiva about. 
So today, says Rafutna, this is back in the 60s. He says, today we have a different problem. They didn't have a fancy word like self-esteem, yeah? He says, nobody has a sense of self-worth. Nobody thinks that they are important. I was giving a, uh, a vod for married women. Uh, they chose to talk about midot. I went to a different midot. So I gave a general introduction. Then I said, what do you want to talk about? So the first one they wanted to talk about was savlanut, patience. I said, we'll have to wait till we get to that. Next, yeah? So they said, gava. I said, I'll be happy to talk about it. But there are no baile gava today. There are no bali gava. So he says, what do you mean? I know people. I said, no, you don't. A Balgaiva was somebody who really believed that he was a superior human being. We have something different today. It's not called a Balgaiva. Yeah? The correct term for it is egoism. What does that mean? I don't see anything beyond myself. It's not that I think I'm so great. I just can't imagine anything else. I can't care about anybody else. What what does that mean? You ever see a small child? A small child only thinks about himself. You take a really little kid, they cover up their eyes and they go, you can't see me. Because if I can't see, you can't see me. There's no existence outside of myself. That's all I know. I only know me. You know, you you get your Yetzirah when you're born, you get your Yetzirah Tov at your Bar Mitzvah. Right? Until then, you're just... You're just bad, right? You, know, you can only start to do good when you become a bar mitzvah. Why? Because you can't do anything good, just like you can't really do too much bad when you're a little kid. Because you don't see beyond yourself. You're in this world to be able to do things that are important, but you have to be able to see beyond yourself. Who cares? A little kid doesn't care. You have to see outside of yourself and a little kid can't do You can change, train them behavioristically like a dog that they'll go around and do things, etc. But if you want them to really make decisions, they have to think outside of themselves. Little kids can't do that. And today, you know, um, the Gemara says that parents are obligated to support their children until they're old enough to support themselves. How old is that? Five. If the kid's a little slow, six. You understand? That's it. But you can't expect a parent to support a kid after they're already six years old. Let the kid go out and get a job and support himself. Yeah? So we were learning this Gemara, and one of my students said, well, it's different today. I said, I know. Today it's about 45. You know what I mean? And the the only reason after that is because hopefully one of the parents died and he got the Yerusha. Because otherwise, you know, how are you supposed to take care of someone? Who sees themselves as an adult? Do we even know what it means to be an adult? I'll tell you a story. My father wanted to tell me once how my grandfather was such a wild guy. And he says to me, one time, you know, my grandfather, he took one of the kids... Bicycles and he rode it down the street. I was like, Yeah. I said, I know people who learn in yeshiva, I know businessmen, they, they ride their bicycles. He says, That's today. Back then, adults never did things like that. You never, you look at the old pictures, no adult walked out on the street without a jacket and a hat and often a tie. I'm talking about Goyim, I'm not talking about Jews. Everybody dressed that way. When I was growing up, 
I would never call my parents friends by their first name. It was Mr. This and Mrs. That and Miss This. You know? Today, you know, someone calls their mother's friend by their first name. And she's like, oh, I feel like you're talking to my mother-in-law. <laughs> call me Shani, you know? Okay, Shani. <laughs> they have little kids talking to adults and calling them by their first names. Why? Because nobody can be expected to act like an adult. Nobody thinks that way anymore. When I was growing up, everybody made Pesach. Everybody did. There was, there was no question. You did what you had to do. My father, Shalom, he always would say, I don't understand. You, you get married to a nice Jewish girl and you build a family because that's what you're supposed to do. And you get up in the morning and you go to work and you support your children because that's what you're supposed to do. It's not a question of if I feel like it. You do what you have to do. My father went bankrupt at one point. Um, remember, I asked my mother when this was. She said, right around when you were born. She says, every child brings their own luck. You know <laughs> So my father got depressed, and he sat at home. And so my mother says, you've got children to support, you know? And she says, I'll go with you. And the two of them would go to work, and they'd sit there, and they'd work morning to night, you know, and to be able to support a family. But it wasn't kind of like, what do I do now? You know, it's too bad. A person had a sense of responsibility. So you understand, I tell kids today, I say, I don't know what you want. You're brought up by my generation, you know. My generation can't do anything, you know. My father's generation, they went through the Depression. They fought World War II. They did, they did all kinds of amazing things. They built things. You meet these people who are Holocaust survivors. They come back and they built businesses. And they built things. They set things up. You meet these people who came out of Iran with nothing. Only the shirt on their back and all the diamonds sewed into it. And they come back <laughs> and they start over from scratch and they build something and they do things. Whoever, you know, nobody complained. Nobody started, that just is too hard for me. I can't do it, etc. Everybody felt like I can do whatever I can do. What's it like today? I was a mashkiach in yeshiva <clears throat> during a particularly dark period of my life. And uh, it was basically yeshiva for guys who came right out of high school to learn in Israel for a year. This one guy left high school, he went to college for a year, and then he came. So he was much more mature than everybody else. I know because he kept telling me how much more mature he is than everybody else. He wouldn't miss a chance to tell me how mature he was. So finally I said to him, I said, do you know what maturity means? Maturity means you're big enough and old enough to take responsibility. I said, Shacharit in the morning is 7.15. You don't get out of bed until after 11. Many days after 12. So why do you think you're so mature? And he said to me, maybe you should be asking yourself why you can't motivate me to get up in the morning. Because really, this is your failure, Rabbi, isn't it? <laughs> was a turning point <laughs> in the history of mankind. Because what it meant is, as I saw a bumper sticker once, no problem is so big that you can't blame it on somebody else. You understand? <laughs> and everything is somebody else's problem. You ever hear these people, I can't make Shabbos, it's too hard, can't we buy takeout, can't we go away, I can't handle the kids, everything's too much for me, you know? Sometimes you hear two people get married and they're both whining, it's so beautiful. I can't do this, well I can't do it either, why don't you do it, I can't do it. And you're waiting for somebody to come in and slap them, stop it, stop it, grow up, you know? But everything is too much for us, and I don't mean that, it's really true. 
my kids, they love it when they come to America. They think it's so funny, you know. You, you go to a store here and you buy cookies that are already made and they're on a tray. They're already on the tray. And you turn on the oven and you put the tray in the oven and I made fresh cookies. And my kids are like, what are you talking about? Well, we live in Israel. You know, you want to have cookies. You sift the flour and you mix everything in. You put the whole thing together, you know. So they, said, they said it was great. We made a vegetable soup. You walk into a store. They have a bag of all the vegetables all cut up. A little bag of all the spices. Nebuch, you have to add the water yourself. You know what I mean? You have to put in the water, put it all in, turn it on. I made vegetables. <laughs> Everything is... I can't, I can't handle anything. Everything is too much for us. Everything has to be done for us. And so therefore, we look whose fault is it? When I was a kid, if you were walking and you fell down in front of someone's store, you broke your leg. The store owner came out and yelled at you. Stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? And he called your father. And your father came down and he said, Stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? And he took you to the hospital. And the doctor said, Stupid kid, why don't you watch where you're going? Yeah? You know what happened? Next time you watched where you were going. You know? Today, if you fall down and break your leg, I'm going to sue that guy. Because he had a hard sidewalk. You understand? And it's his fault that I broke my leg. It's got to be somebody's fault. So there was a famous story here in America. This woman bought a cup of coffee at McDonald's. You know the story. She held it between her legs as she was driving. And it spilled. And she crashed. And she sued McDonald's for serving hot coffee. (laughs) Now you can go to any store today and look at the cup. And printed on the cup is... Caution may be hot because otherwise, how would you know it's hot from the steam coming out of it? (laughs) So, I forgot this woman's name, but they give her an award every year for the best case of this kind of thing. A guy was driving a Winnebago and he put it on cruise control, which in his mind meant automatic pilot. He thought he was flying a plane. You understand? He goes in the back to get a drink, and the thing flies off the road and gets all smashed up. Unfortunately, he survived, and because uh, he would have done the world a service if he hadn't. But anyway, he survives, and um, and he sues Winnebago because nowhere does it say you have to continue to drive the car when it's in cruise control. And he won a new Winnebago. So now if you check the manual, it says on it, you know, does, must continue to drive while in cruise control. <laughs> if you take a look at a Halloween costume, a Superman costume, it writes in the box, I saw this, caution, does not allow wearer to fly. Because <laughs> someone might put it on and think, now I can fly and jump out the window and then you'll sue me. You know it says on a hairdryer, do not use underwater. That's good advice, by the way. On a power saw, I saw all these things myself. On a power saw, do not cut wood on your lap. Do I need to explain that one? But that's not my favorite. My favorite is, there is a type of peanut, I don't know if they have it everywhere, but they know they have it in America, called planter's peanuts. The guy in charge, the, 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 the symbol is Mr. Peanut. He is a peanut. He's wearing a hat, and he's got a cane, he's got a tuxedo, but he's a peanut. 
His name is Mr. Peanut. The jar is shaped like a peanut. You understand? And it says, Planters Peanuts. And letters on the bottom, it says, Caution, may contain peanuts. <laughs> you know, because someone with a peanut allergy, how could he know there were peanuts in there? Nobody, nobody can hold me responsible. The last adult president we had in America was a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan. And uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, when he was president, so there was this car bomb in Lebanon. It killed 200 Marines, over 200 Marines. And President Reagan got on television and said, yeah, I am the commander-in-chief. This is my fault. I will take responsibility for what happened. That's an adult. Bill Clinton was president, and he lied under oath. That's a federal offense. Because they asked him, did you ever have relations with Monica Lewinsky? And he swore, he swore under oath that he didn't. And it turned out he was lying. Turned out he was lying. And what was his defense? His defense was great. It's not my fault that I lied. They shouldn't have asked me the question. <laughs> if they didn't ask me the question, I wouldn't have lied. That makes sense to me. <laughs> it's not my fault I lied. It's your fault because you asked me the question. You know I have no choice but to lie. Then <laughs> can't be my fault. I can't take responsibility. So that's the situation that we have today. There was a time when there was gaiva, you know? Now it's the opposite. Now it's all self-esteem. And because of that, nobody will ever, unfortunately, hear the things they need to hear. Because you're not allowed to criticize anybody. You can't, you know, you have to say to a kid, oh, it's so nice, you know, you, you got up today. That's twice this week. Very good. <laughs> Next week, maybe three times. You know what I mean? Uh, and it's, you know, but you can't say, you can't ever criticize, you can never say anything, you know? It's, uh, you know, I, uh, my first time ever I was teaching, uh, I was substituting in a seminary, a uh, girl's seminary. And I asked a question, and a girl said something, and I said, no, 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 that's wrong. And the whole class went, <gasps> and this girl said, how can you say that to me? You just invalidated me. I never even heard that word. <laughs> I said, what are you, a parking meter? I'll put in another quarter. I mean, what that? <laughs> well, forget it. I lost the whole room. That's so disgusting. You know, they start the whispering. Did you hear what he said? That's so disgusting. He's supposed to be a rabbi. I don't understand that. I was like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. It was too late. I had lost the entire room. So now it doesn't matter what anybody says. You know? I say, that's interesting. I'm looking for something a little different. Like the right answer, you know what I mean? You never tell anybody they're wrong, you know? I don't know, when I was growing up, if I said something in class that was, that was wrong, you know, my Rebbe would encourage me by saying, what are you, a moron? 
okay, I'm an idiot. Says something like that. And I was like, okay, okay. You know? And it really was an encouragement for you not to sound like a moron the next time when he asks you something, you know? But now, no matter what anybody says, it has to be right. You have to, you have to constantly baby everybody. And because of this, what, what ends up happening? It's the exact opposite. So you see people who today may look like Bali Gaiva, but not because they're Bali Gaiva. It's just because they think so little of themselves. Because they're like little children. And they constantly need to hear how wonderful they are and how terrific they are. And that's not where any happiness comes from. Happiness comes from when people stand up and take responsibility. uh, Noah Weinberg from Asia Torah, he used to have an expression. He said, it's hard to stay sane in an insane world. So when everybody's crazy and you're normal, you look like the crazy one. You know what I mean? See, we're living now in a crazy world. But crazy, you know? So how does a person change this around? So I want to... There's an unbelievable story. It's an unbelievable story. I saw it written many years ago. This guy has a new car. And he stops to pick up something in a grocery. And it's kind of a run-down neighborhood. And there's a kid... A uh, kid is looking at the new car when he comes out. He's wearing old clothes that are too big on him, and they're kind of worn out. You can see he's a poor kid. And he says, uh, he says, hey, kid, you like the car? He says, yeah, where did you get it from? He says, my brother bought it for me. And the kid says, wow, I wish... And the guy knew already. I wish I had a brother like that, right? But that's not what the kid said. He said... I wish I could be a brother like that. Yeah? Because there are some people who wish they had a brother like that and some people who want to be a brother like that. So the guy was taken off guard by this and he says, you want to go for a ride? And he says, yeah. So he gets in the car and they, you know, they drive. He says, can we drive by my house? So he says, oh, he must, you know, he must want to show off to his friends that in a fancy car. He says, sure. So they pull up his house. He says, wait a second. And he runs inside and he carries out his younger brother who can't walk. He had polio. And he said, you see, Billy, his brother bought him that car. One day I'll buy you a car like that so that you have be really easier for you to get around because it's so hard for you now. Everybody wishes they had a brother like that. But how many people wish they could be a brother like that? So Howard Schultz, who's the head of uh, Starbucks, he sent around a famous email about uh, when he was in Israel with a group of leaders. And they met with a lot of different important people. And one of the people they met with was Nussan Svi Finkel, who was the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir. Now, if you knew of Nussan Svi, he had terrible Parkinson's. And he would shake, and it was difficult for him. It was hard for him to walk, and usually the two people have to drag him along. You know, very difficult. Anyway, Howard Schultz writes his email. It's a famous email. You can find it online. And he says, the, he brings us into you know, the office, and we're all turning away because it's hard to look at him. And he gives a bang on the table, and he says, my friends, you're very important people. You don't have a lot of time to waste. Let's do this quickly. He says, what did we learn from the Holocaust? So people gave different answers, you know, um, uh, that you have to have an army, you have to stand up for yourself, never again. You know, we learned uh, that the, the world's against us. We learned, oh, okay. 
He says, I'll tell you what we learned from the Holocaust. We learned from the Holocaust that five people could sleep on a board with one blanket. Now, Chaim Shmulovitz, who had been the Rashi of the, of the Mir before that, he once said, how do five people sleep with one blanket? If your whole time you're worried to make sure the other guy's covered, and you keep pushing the blanket to the other guy. He says, five people were able to sleep with one blanket, and he looked around the room at these wealthy, important people, and he said, you have a blanket. Share your blanket. That was the whole meeting, and Howard Schultz wrote an email out to everybody about this meeting. He was so moved. Now I'll tell you the story that people don't know. I know it because Nussin Svi Finkel's Gabai used to come to my shir in Chumash, and he told me over this story. He says he was the only one. It was him and Nussin Svi and Howard Schultz. He came back again, and he came to see Nussin Svi. And he takes out a check, and he signs it, and he hands it to him and says, Rabbi, fill it out for whatever you want. At that time, the budget of the Mir Yeshiva was $2 million a month. Reb Svi was responsible with his terrible Parkinson's to raise the money himself. He had to fly all around and knock on doors and collect the money. He could have written $2 million on that check and Howard Schultz wouldn't have said a word. And he looks at Howard Schultz and he says, I can do whatever I want with this check? He says, that's right, Rabbi. And he fills it out for $1,200. And he hands it back to Howard Schultz and he says, take this check to that store across the street. Tell them I sent you to get a pair of tefillin and put it on every day. That's what you could do for me. Because Rebdustin Svi had a blanket. It was called Torah and Mitzvahs. And he could look at this rich guy and say, what can I get out of him for me? Well, I could look at him and say, what could I do for him? I don't want a brother like that. I want to be a brother like that. We have the ability to make a change. People will try to convince you. One person can't make a difference in this world. It's not true. Avram Avinu was one person. The Chavetz Chaim was one person. One person can change the world. I have seen Rabbanim who go to a community and they build something. And they're able to create a community. And from that community come schools and families and all kinds of changes that take place. I don't know what's doing in Panama. I haven't been invited there yet to come and speak. But I'm open. Yeah. <laughs> this is really just an infomercial, but you know. But if there's a if there's a Jewish community in Panama that can inspire 140 people to get on a plane and come to sit in classes, then there's some people there who are doing amazing things. And those people who are going to do those things are the people sitting in this room. Because this is the most you are among, by you coming here, I want you to appreciate this. You are among the top 2% of most committed Jews in the world. This is the leadership of the next generation. It's right here. You're the people who are going to save the Jewish people. There's nobody else. I was speaking about this idea once, about how every single one of us 
has the ability to be able to make a change in the world. And this woman comes over to me and she says, I want to change the world. Now, I happen to know this lady. She had her hands full. She had a bunch of kids. She had a lot to do. And I said, listen, Judaism is as strong as its you know, weakest family. Work on your family. Work on your children. That's the best thing you can do. No, no, no. I want to do something for the world. When you build a Jewish home, you're doing something for the world. No, I want to go out and do something. You know. I said, okay, do you have a degree in anything? No. Do you have um, any work experience? No, I've never held a job. Do you have any particular talents? She thinks and she says, I bake. Okay, I said, let's think about this. We'll speak tomorrow and see how we're going to bake the world into a better place. I really had no idea what to tell her. <laughs> but a convert who watches out for people with good intentions, you know. <laughs> so she calls me the next day. She says, I figured it out. I said, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> she says, there's a school for special children, mentally and physically handicapped kids, in my neighborhood. And I'm going to, there's about 50 kids in the school, and every Rosh Chodesh, I'm going to bake them cupcakes. I make great cupcakes. I've, I, with filling and frosting. And I, everyone says how great my cupcakes are. And I'm going to make them cupcakes. Very nice. Yeah. She calls me the day after Rosh Chodesh. She's flying. She says, the Menachel called me up and said, you understand these are kids who don't think very well. Many of them don't see or hear very well. They don't move very well. The one thing that works well for all of them is their sense of taste. And you made 50 children very happy. So I thought, beautiful, heartwarming. Uh, six months later, I see her. I say, how are things going? She says, I have to set up a website. I said, okay, I'm not that technical savvy. But you're baking cupcakes. Why do you need a website? You understand? You can't email them. You know what I mean? I, I know they're coming out with 3D printers. You know, maybe you can make 3D cupcakes. I don't know. You know? She says, you don't understand. After the second month, I started getting calls from schools for special children all over Yerushalayim. And people saying to me, could you make a special treat for our children too? She says, look, I can make thousands of cupcakes, but I know neighbors who are also good bakers. And she started contacting you know, people, and she says, listen, I, I'm not like you. I won't do it every month, but I'll do it once a year. Someone said, I'll do it twice a year. Someone said, I'll do it every other month. So she's coordinating the schools with the women. And this way, if anything falls short, she'll fill in the slack. I hung up the phone. Sorry. I hung up the phone, and I was really moved. Because I hear these stories about the guy who started Hatsala. I'm not impressed. I, I'm just not that capable. <laughs> I'm not going to start a major organization. I'm not going to build a school. All I know how to do is talk. I really can't do anything else. You know what I mean? So there are people, people who build these big organizations. They're no threat to me. You know what I mean? Because I can't do those things. But here's an average woman without any special powers and abilities. And she had only one desire. She wanted to make the world a better place. And because of her, there's a thousand kids whose lives are very hard and very, very cold and very dark. And their lives have been made a little sweeter because one woman said, I can change the world. There is nobody in this room 
who doesn't have powers and ability. There's nobody in this room who can change the world. We can't afford a luxury today to say, I can't. You can change the world. I'll end with this one story. And yes, uh, to everybody because it's a late night and it's been a long day and really you guys are terrific. It's a, it's a schut to be here. But I'll end with this one story. The Chavetz Chaim at the Aguda Convention in 1929, he said the situation in Klai is so bad now, everybody has to go out and, and reach out to other Jews to do cure. Everybody has to. Okay. Later on in the day, the Chavetz Chaim asked if he could speak again. Okay. They had a pretty full roster back then, you know, 1929 in Europe. But they told the Chaim Moiza, could you please step to the side and, you know, and the Meshachachma, you know, could you guys wait, you know. The Chavetz Chaim wants to speak again. The Chavetz Chaim said, I heard people saying, he doesn't mean me. He said, doesn't mean me. He means people who are smarter than I am, who are more talented than I am, who are more sincere, more religious. He doesn't mean me. The Chavetz Chaim said, I'll, I'll bring you a story. There was a nobleman who owned many, many villages. Yeah? And uh, owned a big piece of land with a lot of villages. And they were all owned by him. So he would go around and investigate, check up on his villages. And he comes to one place and he takes a drink of water and he spits it out. He says, this is terrible. It tastes sandy. He says, well, yeah, there's sand in the water. He says, no, 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 no. You can't use water with sand in it. I'm making a new rule in this village. That you're not allowed to use any water until you boil it first. Okay. A few weeks later, he's in his castle, his manor house, and he's looking out, and he sees a fire. He gets into his wagon, and he rushes off, and it's this village, it's burning to the ground. And everyone's standing around. And he says, why don't you put out the fire? He says, we will, we're just waiting for the water to boil first. (laughs) He says, when I said to boil the water, that was for drinking, that was for cooking. But when there's a fire, you take whatever water you have, and you throw it on. Says the Chavetz Chaim, I don't care if you're sandy water, I don't care if you're murky water, everybody has water, everybody has the ability to put out the fire. We are at the end of Jewish history. Bigger people than me have said this. And we're in the end game. And how many people are going to be able to have the schut that you have to be able to come and to sit in classes and to be able to find the beauty of Torah and mitzvahs is going to be determined by us. How many people we're going to go and look after and care about and make a difference in their lives. My friends, we can't afford today for anybody to think that they're not important. We have to know how important we are. Halavai will reach a point again where we'll have Baligaiva. But right now we have to have people who believe in themselves for you and for your families and for Klai Yisrael. Thank you very much.